Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Salvatore Cassano is the former commissioner of the New York City Fire Department. He was appointed commissioner by Mayor Michael Bloomberg in January 2010 and retired from the FDNY in 2014. Mr. Cassano became an FDNY member in 1969 and served in every uniformed rank, including the highest chief of department. From 2001 to 2006, he served as chief of operations, a position to which he was appointed immediately after September 11, 2001. Both as chief of operations and chief of department, Cassano played a critical role in rebuilding the FDNY, which lost 343 of its members on 9-11. Under his leadership, nearly 7,000 new firefighters were hired and some 6,000 others were promoted to various officer ranks as the department went through a difficult but remarkable resurgence. Prior to joining the FDNY, Mr. Cassano served in the U.S. Army from October 1965 through July 1967 and was deployed to Vietnam in September 1966. While a firefighter, he attended John Jay College of Criminal Justice and received a Bachelor of Science degree in Fire Science. Mr. Cassano also received an Honorary Doctor of Laws degree from St. John's University in May 2013. You're listening to the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. I'm your host, Patty Murphy. Commissioner Cassano, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. My pleasure, Patty. I would like to begin our conversation by discussing your military service. As I mentioned in the intro, you served in the U.S. Army and deployed to Vietnam in 1966. And America's Vietnam experience is one of great debate, controversy, and fueled with mixed emotions. So I have to ask, what did you learn about yourself as a young soldier in combat? And what did you learn about the human condition? Sure, Patty. Well, as a 20-year-old kid who lived in Brooklyn my whole life, growing up in a a, a very cozy Italian-American community, and, and then being deployed to Vietnam, it was certainly uh, an eye-opening experience. And while there was great debate going on in the country, I will have to say that the people that I deployed with, that we staffed the 11th Armored Cav as it was depleted coming back from Germany, and we rebuilt the unit, and we grew together. We were a team. We knew that we were going to combat. We were expecting it. And whatever controversy was going on, it was us. It was the group, the team, the battalion, the regiment, together going to serve our country. And that's the way we looked at it. It was like, we're doing this for our country. Uh, There's there's no greater country in the world. I said it almost 60 years ago, and I'll say it again today. There's no place like the United States of America. That's what we were fighting for. We were fighting for the United States of America. And all the controversy that was going on, it was secondary to us surviving and doing our job and working together as a team 
and being there for each other. So if somebody got homesick, somebody else was there to take care of them. And then probably a week later, it was the other way around. And and that's how we survived there. And when you, when you talk about, you know, the human condition, it's adaptable. It's adaptable to any condition that you can come up with as long as you're willing to adapt, as long as you're not rigid, as long as you're willing to adapt to change when it happens. As people, we are so resilient. As long as we have an open mind and we can say, we're going to get through this. And in Vietnam, we said we were going to get through this together. And we were friends for many, many years afterwards when we all came home and got, you know, left the service. And, it, you know, it was just, um, it was a great experience. It was a great experience. Based on that response, I'm very interested to ask you this next question, which is, how did your tour in Vietnam shape your views on service and leadership? Sure. Well, first of all, service was like, that's what we were there for. We were there to serve our country. You rang the bell. I answered it. And I knew that I was going to war because the United States of America asked us to do that. You know, it's, it's funny how people don't realize when, whether you, whether you listen, whether you're enlisted or you get drafted, you're still in the service. And when you do that, you're writing a blind check to the country to say, I'm willing to give everything I can for you. And, and that's what men and women in the military do. I, think, I don't think a lot of people really understand that, that that's what they do. And, and then as far as the leadership, I, I worked under um, some really, really, really good officers. And in particular, my first sergeant who took me under his wing when I first got to uh, Fort Meade, Maryland, when nobody else was around on like New Year's Eve, and he must have seen I looked like a, a deer in the headlights. And he took me under his wing. And for the two years that I was with him, we had a great relationship. And I, I really saw his leadership skills were being always open, being able to listen to you, taking your opinion, formulating a plan. And, and, and I've used that since I left the service, went to other jobs and, and in the fire department for sure. Are there any leaders or comrades in the Army who were particularly influential in your development that you want to mention now? Sure. Well, one of them was uh, the first sergeant I mentioned, Arby Underwood, you know, uh, a Korean veteran and a lifelong soldier. And he was just uh, so approachable. He really helped not only me, but all of the people that served under him in this difficult tour of Vietnam get through it and uh, worked together for him. And then I had a, a really good warrant officer, R.A. Trujillo, who was really good as well, uh, another person that was approachable. The only problem I had with him is he wanted me to extend and re-enlist. And I said, mm-mm, not this time. <laughs> but he, he really was he, was, he was trying to get me to, to re-enlist and become a warrant officer like he was, and which was nice because maybe he saw something in me that he had in himself. And uh, he was another person that really shaped the the whole crew over there. Excellent. You joined the ranks of the FDNY in 1969, and you were one of several hundred young men who served our nation in Vietnam and then entered the department's ranks in the early years of the FDNY's war years. When did you know that you wanted to be a New York City firefighter? Well, I had a little bit of help. My brother was a firefighter, mm-hmm. and he was somebody that I will have to say we could talk about mentors and all, but he actually shaped my career. He was um, a young firefighter uh, who worked with a lot of young 
other firefighters who got promoted to lieutenant. I used to see the people that were around him and how much they respected him and how much they valued his opinion. And he was in very busy companies in the war years in, in Harlem. And when they, young firefighters, put their lives in your hands, that says something about the person. So, that you know, my brother was um, my first big influence in the department. And, you know, he's the reason why I joined. He actually showed me, you know, how good, I, I didn't know that much about the job, even though he was a firefighter, because I was busy with my other life. But he showed me the camaraderie, you know, the camaraderie, the family history in the department, like how your firehouse is part of your family and you know, how you help each other out in the good times, but more importantly, in the bad times. And then when he, when he showed me that and says, this is the job, kind of easy to say I'm in. And so you know, he was the first one that really, really got me interested in the job and, and, and then shaped my career for sure. Focusing on that timeline or this part of the timeline, what was the transition like as a combat veteran during the Vietnam era? Well, I, I tell you, it made it easier to accept the discipline that you were getting in the fire department. If you didn't have military background, I think it would have been a little bit more, I, I, I'm going to speak for myself, but I can speak for other people that don't have military experience. And you can see the difference between somebody that was in the military with experience and somebody that wasn't. Much, much easier to accept the discipline that you need to get the job done. And our job, if you're not disciplined, and I'm, and I'm not talking about conduct, I'm talking about discipline and, and being in the right place at the right time, doing the right thing at the right time, listening to orders, very difficult. So being a combat veteran coming back, it made a transition from the Army to the FDNY a lot easier for me because of that experience. Right. I mean, they call it paramilitary for a reason. Yep. Oh, 100%. Absolutely. Right. And I would assume that you worked alongside and with a multitude of seasoned leaders in the early years of your career, both as a firefighter and as a lieutenant. Who were some of the leaders that you sought to emulate in the early years of your career and why? Would, like, which traits and attributes impressed you? Sure. Well, the, the first one I told you about was my brother, uh, first and foremost, who got me interested in the job. I followed his career and I saw how the people that worked under him so, so respected him for his leadership skills, his openness, his willingness to help them out. And, you know, and then off the job, they were friends as well. And then I became friends. Um, so first and foremost, it was my brother. And then as a young firefighter, I know, I know you don't know the name that I mentioned. I had bumped into uh, Bill Feehan, mm-hmm. who, you know, we lost on September 11th to our first deputy fire commissioner. And Bill was a captain in Lower Manhattan where I was a firefighter. And for some reason, he was working in a house, whether it was on overtime or a mutual or whatever. And we sat down. He talked to me for hours about you have to study. You have to get in the books. This was just the exact same thing that my brother told me. But this was an outside person that I had never even met. And he was, here he was helping me to develop a career plan and a path. And I knew how well he was respected. For sure, he was a legend. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that was somebody else that really helped shape my career. And then naturally, it's funny because he kept getting promoted. And then I started to get promoted. I never caught up to him. 
Unfortunately, Bill was killed on September 11th. But there were so many times the conversations we had, even when I was a captain and a, a staff chief, it was like he never forgot that first conversation about a career path. And then he was developing a career path for me as well later on in my career. I appreciate it when people humanize or demystify these iconic figures and actually give you that sort of like firsthand testimonial of working with them. So that's, that's very powerful and appreciated. Oh, it's, it was um, something I certainly, you know, Bill, and Bill's saying, Bill's family knows how I feel about him. I, you know, cause I've told him, I haven't told him once I've told him a hundred times now he really helped shape my career and, and how much I appreciate it. Obviously, you served in every uniformed rank of the FDNY, and so I have to ask, which rank did you enjoy the most and why? Well, to me, that's an easy one. I uh, I enjoyed the rank of battalion chief. Oh, I mean, I, lo- I, I loved every rank, and, 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 I, and I mean it seriously. I feel so blessed to have spent almost 45 years in a job that I loved and looked forward to going to work every day, even in the darkest hours. I looked forward to going to the work because I thought I could help. But if you're going to give me one position and say, what would you like to do? I loved being a battalion chief uh, for a couple, a couple of reasons. You know, it was like you have your own battalion and you have, whether you have between seven and 10 companies, that means you're going to talk to seven to 10 companies every time you work. If you're doing your job right, you're going to be out there every day talking to the companies and Telling them what's going on in the job, telling them what's what to expect of them, and and then again being there to listen to them, and see what their concerns are. So, it was such a a, a good experience for me because I how many lives that I touch every day. Right. You know, they say ten times six is sixty people every day I'm dealing with every day that I work, and explaining to them what's good in the job, what's going on, the dangers, you know, the highlights, and then sitting down with them, having a cup of coffee, and then just listening to them open up. And and the good thing about it is they opened up because you have to be, they have to realize that he's serious. He really wants to know what's going on. It's not like lip service. Hey guys, here you go. It's gone. No, it's, if you don't have that input from the people that you work for you or you work for, kind of hard to really lead. Along with some of the things you just mentioned, like which leadership principles do you think served you well at every rank along the course of your career? Well, I think the most important one was integrity. Mm-hmm. I, I think people that realize that you are a person of integrity, they realize that you are serious about how you're going to do your job. Honesty, Absolutely honesty, openness, willingness to listen. Uh, I think probably one of the most important leadership skills is being a good listener. You know, it's easy to give orders, but it, it's harder to listen to people and what they say. And then <clears throat> again, ultimately you're going to make the ultimate decision. But if you ask me for my, my main leadership skill, I would say integrity, because I think f- for people that you command, I think that's the most important thing to them. At this point, I want to talk about September 11th and your experience. On the morning of 9-11, I understand you were the citywide tour commander. And Mm -hmm. we're speaking today, November 2020. It's been nearly 20 years since that fateful September morning. 
Which aspects of 9-11 or that day remain most vivid for you? I mean, there's so many things, you know, for myself, I probably, I don't want to say relive, but think September 11th every day of my life. Some, some aspect of it, whether I'm, I'm reading something in the paper or I get an email from a family member or somebody else. So it's, it's, there's not a day that doesn't go by that September 11th doesn't uh, come up in, in my life. I'm not saying everybody, but in my life, sure. Uh, but the thing that I remember most about that day was the unbe- unbelievable discipline and heroism that was displayed by the members of our department. I, mean, I, I can't say any other department because I was dealing with the members of the FDNY. But uh, on that day, I was working directly with Chief Pete Gancy, Chief of Department, who got killed that day. So he was giving me things to do. And I gave out orders to many people. And there wasn't one person that looked at me with a crooked look to say, are you, you know, no way in the world. No way. In the world. We all knew this was going to be the worst day of our lives. But everybody went about their business just like they would at an, an all hands fire or um, a regular one in one. They went about their business like, OK, that's the assignment. Good. We're going to take care of it. We're going to get it done. And chief will get back to you. And and that's what sticks in my mind is the discipline, the courage, the bravery that was displayed by our members that day. And I mean, I don't want to talk about days and months and weeks and years later that they still do, but that stuck out in my mind is I'm looking at these two 110 story buildings, two planes crashed into them, all the dangers that are involved. I don't, I can get into gory details, but I won't. And yet they went about their business just like they would as any professional and not, no flinching. And that I'll never forget because um, to, to the members that we lost, their families need to know that, that they perform so admirably. I've heard that said before by others who were there, specifically the, the glances that they shared. Mm-hmm that that left yeah. such an indelible mark on them. I remember um, Father Michael Judge. I was walking on South Street. I'm sorry, on West Street. I was going to do an assignment that uh, Chief Gancy gave me, and I crossed paths with Father Mike. And I knew Father Mike because I was the commander of the 1st Division. He put up in uh, uh, Engine 1 and Ladder 24, so his car was there. We'd have many a conversation. Uh, it was actually like in hearing confession. He'd say, that guy was such a good guy. You know, he may not make a mistake, but maybe we can find it in our hearts to forgive him. That was Father Mike. <laughs> and, but we, we, we crossed paths on West, on West Street and it was just a glancing look at me. I glanced at him, you know, just a nod of the head. And all I did was say to him, Father Mike, we're going to need a lot more chaplains here today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's something, uh, that's, Never, ever going to leave my mind that 10-second encounter with Father Michael Judge. Beginning on September 12, 2001, you served in the three most prominent leadership roles in the FDNY over the next 13 years. From your perspective, what was the most monumental challenge that the FDNY faced? I think it was to convince the people 
in the field that A, we were going to recover from the losses that we suffered. Now, you, you lose 343 members of the department in 102 minutes. And, and you know, in the beginning, we, we, had, we thought we had hundreds of others missing. Well, we did. And to try to convince the members of the department, A, we're strong. B, we have the knowledge to overcome even the worst losses. We lost our chief of department, first deputy fire commissioner, uh, Donald Burns, Jerry Barbara, uh, Ray Downey. Um, I can go on and on and on with the, the amount of years. We lost 4,400 years of experience that day. Mm -hmm. And to convince the members of the department, A, we were going to recover. B, we were going to rebuild. C, we were going to be stronger than we ever were. And D, we were going to make sure this never happens to us again. And and it was not easy. It was a matter of thank God, a number of senior people stayed around. They didn't retire. They they you know I had a great staff. When you said I had thirteen years, we were almost together for thirteen years. The people that served with me first as a staff chief, and then under me as the chief of department, chief of operations, and the fire commission. We were such a cohesive team, mm -hmm. and and that was one of the reasons why we were able to do it because the people in the field saw that we were there. We've been there for a long time. We knew we had a plan and we were going to stick to that plan unless it needed to be revised. Plans always be, can always be revised. And how are we going to rebuild the department? When I say rebuild, I don't only mean rebuilt. We actually re redesigned the department right. to do many, many more things than we ever did. And, and I could take our Marine division and tell you, you know, we got a couple of minutes the Marine Division, we were in the middle of revamping the Marine Division prior to September 11th to make it a smaller fleet, faster fleet, peers were down, we didn't need all this firepower. Mm -hmm. September 11th comes, we have no water, and for five days we're using our fireboats, and we go, we, we turn the ship around, and we redesign our Marine Division to be more terrorism ready, mm -hmm. to use fireboats, the biggest in the world, faster fireboat, small boat fleet, just what we did in the Marine Division will be historic. And we did that throughout the job. But that was the hardest part was to let members know that we have a plan. We really have a plan. Just stay with us, trust us, mm -hmm. listen to us, and we'll listen to you. It was a team effort, a total team effort by thousands of people. Yeah, I'm going off script for a hot second, but even the project that I work on at the fire department is absolutely born from 9-11. Diamond Plate 100%. is funded by the Department of Homeland Security as a post 9-11 initiative aimed at keeping members operationally ready, which you supported and brought to the department and really fostered. We knew that we weren't going to be able to do this by losing that much experience without increasing our training. And mm -hmm. I, you know, we can't, you can only send so many people to the training academy. You can only send so many people to the firehouse. We had to have a venue where at three in the morning, a firefighter wants to sit down and go over an SOP or go over a tough fire that happened someplace else in the city that they would have that ability. And that's what Diamond Plate brought us. Um, it, it worked. It's certainly working now. You know, I, I know it worked when I was there. And, and, I, and I know, you know, I, I, I listen through my son's eyes and my son-in-law sometimes. And, and it's a great training tool. And the only way you're going to stay sharp is to continue to train. You train like you fight, so you fight like you train. I know it sounds like an old cliche, but it's the, it's the truest thing in the world.
And the one other important thing that I think it does is it encapsulates knowledge at that time, right? It's a representation yep. of what we knew at the date of publication, not everything, but I love the fact that we have that historical record. Sure, absolutely. You mentioned it earlier, resilience, and it has definitely become a popularized buzzword. The other members of the leadership under fire team, and I believe that the FDNY demonstrated unrivaled resilience in the days, months, and years following 9-11. So I should probably ask now, how do you personally define resilience? Sure. And by the way, I agree with you 100% that members of our department have showed an unbelievable amount of resilience. To me, resilience means just being able to come back from a very difficult situation, whether it was a fire or whether it was one of your comrades getting killed in the line of duty or just how do you come back from a traumatic experience? And, and this, this, you know, you can come back and, and just go back at business as usual, or you can come back and say, what did I learn from this experience? So while the word resilience to me means, yes, how do you come back from such a, a traumatic experience? But how do you learn from that experience? How do you try to make sure that it never happens again? And like I, I, as I said before, what we did as a department in not only rebuilding the department, because we had to rebuild, uh, we, you know, we, we lost 340 members, then a number of people had to retire eventually because of their illnesses. Um, so how do we overcome all of, how do we overcome all of that loss of knowledge and experience? It was resilience. It was resilience on the part of, people that were in the training academy. Uh, by the way, it was resilience on the people that came on the job. After right. September 11th, we really weren't sure if, did anybody really want this job? I mean, they just saw a bunch of guys get, get killed. They saw people like the walking wounded. They heard all these horrific stories. And we really weren't sure, like, well, we're going to get people to take this job. And I will tell you, we had an overwhelming response right after September 11th when the list opened up for people to apply for the job. And I, and I think that was the first real indicator we were gonna be okay. Because people still want to become firefighters, even knowing what had happened to us on September 11th, even knowing the new dangers that we faced. You know, we, I tell people I came on the job in 1969, I fought fires, I learned how to put a Band-Aid on somebody. There was an old bulletin about a tourniquet that we probably never ever used. That all changed, that all changed. You know, the evolution of the job as a firefighter now is, you know, you CFRD, you could be a paramedic, you know, you're going to respond to, listen, what's going on since March in this pandemic, where our firefighters, EMTs and paramedics are responding as, you know, our first line of defense. And, you know, we're so lucky we have people that take the job and, and not only, it's not just taking the job, they love the job, they love to come to work, they love to help people out. And I tell people, how lucky was I to have a job and then rise through the ranks where people love to come to work? It's not like, oh, my God, I got to go to work today. No, I can't wait to go to work today. And not many people could say that about their employees. Really, not many people. It's a very special place. And I, I'm wondering, like, why do you think the members of the FDNY who were still there after 9-11 were able to demonstrate such resilience? I, I think they knew we had to save this job. I think they knew that we had to rebuild. I know for a fact there was people whose families told to retire. 
listen, this job is too dangerous. Look what happened. This could happen again. And we weren't sure. You know, we were going to start getting anthrax attacks. And But I, I think they knew that this job is so good, we have to stay here and rebuild it. And, and I think that's when they, why they showed that resilience because it's such a great job. It's, you know, when you go to the firehouse, it's not, you're not going with just coworkers. You're going with friends. You're going with people that wives know each other, go away to vacation together. Kids grew up with each other. And, you know, I believe people felt like they really owed it to this job that we had to stay and rebuild and, and look where it is now. 19 years later, stronger, more trained, better equipped than ever. And you talked about the people who came on the job after 9-11. Is there anything about the human condition that you learned or changed your mind about during this whole period? Well, I, I, as I said before, I learned that it's very adaptable and people adopt to the situation. The people that we attract in the department, just tremendous. They, their willingness to give of themselves. As I said, when you become a firefighter and you go to work, you sign a blank check. I'm ready to give up all I have to protect the city and to protect the people. But with that also comes a vow on the department's part that we're going to take care of you and your family if something happens to you. And I think when people realize that that's what you mean and you're really – I, I don't – You've been in the job for a while, and you see that, how we take care of each other and their families. It really goes a long way towards people developing an attitude, I'm here to get to this job 100%, Mm -hmm. and they do. Mm -hmm. You served as the chief of operations, chief of department, and then the fire commissioner, the organization's top three posts for 13 of the 44 years that you spent with the department. What was a leadership decision or dilemma that weighed heavily on you as the chief of department? It's kind of easy. It's budget cuts, closing of fire stations or fire companies, uh, reducing staffing along the way. Um, those are all things that you never, ever want to have to do as a chief officer, especially coming up through the ranks and knowing how important it is. But there are decisions that you have to make. It was the very difficult times. We were coming through a budget crisis, and it was a matter of like prioritizing. Do we want to do A or do we want to do B or do we want to do C? But whether it was A, B, or C, all three of them will be tough decisions. All three of them will be things that were ignoring at your gut, saying, I don't really want to do this. But to close a few fire companies, then being able to save staffing along the way, in my mind, I thought, well, that was the least uh, a painful way to do it. But it was not easy. It was very difficult. And then what was a decision that weighed heavily on you as the fire commissioner? Same thing. It was like I went from the frying pan into the fire. It mm-hmm. got worse after I became fire commissioner. Mm-hmm. And we had, we had at one time on table, there were 16 companies that were unfunded. And then another four companies that were unfunded on top of that. And um, this was the threat that was sitting over us. And I, I usually kept telling Mayor Bloomberg, you close 16 fire companies in New York City, you'll be changing the face of the department. And we were, I was very lucky. I had a really, really good relationship with the mayor for the whole 12 years he was there. 
We worked very closely together. He knew if I was telling him something, I meant it. I wasn't just giving a lift service. And as you close 16 fire companies in New York City, it's going to be a trickle-down effect. And eventually, I can tell you that it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect the safety of the people of the city. And so it was that hung over my head all the way to the time I retired. We didn't have to close any of them, thank God. So he was listening to me. You're one of only a handful of fire commissioners in the FDNY's history who previously served as the chief of department. I don't know the exact number. Do you happen to know it? I think it. I think it's seven, but I'm okay. not, I don't hold me to it. The point being, what did you learn about leadership and policy implementation at that level as a political appointee that you didn't know previously? What I did learn was, um, again, I'm, I'm dealing with Mayor Bloomberg, so I, I can't tell you for any other mayor, but being upfront and honest in the whole time that you're there and that people can really trust what you say and that you're not just going to the wall for something that doesn't mean anything, at least under Mayor Bloomberg, that meant a lot in that he totally put your, again, your integrity your honesty took it into heart whenever we were talking about difficult decisions. And, and, I, and I learned something politically in that you have to be very honest and build relationships across all in New York City, at least and another, another place. So, again, with all agencies, build those relationships and that people will know that you are sincere, that you're willing to help and that the department is going to be there for, for them as well. And, and, I, and I, it, I tell you, it really came into play during Hurricane Sandy because when this city was, I could tell you, we, it was like we were under attack, right, for that, for a while. And we did so much as a department for all the other agencies that really didn't operate under the emergency condition like we do. And, and that, I believe, totally changed the mind of so many other agencies about how good the department was and how help ruling this they were there to help other people. And that, you know, I, I think that big relationship building goes an awful long way in helping you do your job and get things done. Definitely. Looking back, what is one operational or a strategic policy or change that you would have liked to implement because you believed it would have enhanced the capability set of the FDNY, but weren't able to do so? That's an easy one, Pat. I really wish that we could have had firefighter EMTs and paramedics and, and that you come on this job and you're a firefighter and then one day you could be an EMT or a paramedic. Look at how much more adaptable we would have been as a department. You know, they did it in Chicago after many years and, and I tried to get it implemented and, and I just, there was just too much opposition from labor unions and, and even the city in itself because it, it was going to be a costly venture. But I wasn't thinking about course. I was thinking about how was it going to help us operationally. And that's just something I wish we could have looked at a little bit closer, but it never came to fruition. We could have five, five paramedic engines and, and stuff like that. And um, to me, it would have been a big help. You mentioned this earlier. You have a son who's an FDNY firefighter and a son-in-law who is a captain with the department. What are some of the operational challenges that their generation is navigating or will navigate that you think are particularly challenging at this time? Well, one of the things I think is the, the lack of fire duty is certainly a challenge 
in that the less fire duty you have, the more training you have to do, which is okay because I know the department, you know, we, we, we were always big in training and I, I know they're continuing to do that and they're constantly training their members, but you got to do it a little bit. And thank God the, the workload is down. I'm not, the running is through the roof, but the fire duty is down a little bit. So that makes it a little bit more difficult to, uh, you know, be fire ready as opposed to going to two or three jobs a day like we did when we came on. But, they, you know, they'll navigate it because they, the, the training is really, really good. But like, there's so many other things that they have to do. How do you divide your time between CFR and hazmat and building construction and fire duty and, and all the other things that you have to do? How do you divide your time? How do you do, you know, at multi-unit drill? What do you do? You can, you can do 150 evolutions on multi-unit drill. You're only going once a week. And, you know, you're doing the week you're drilling as well. But so how do you divide your time among all the skills that you need to be precise at and still get it done? And I, because I said, there's so much more to do now. Mm-hmm. You know, with, with the way people, the job, the city that has ever evolved, but you're still going to go to a fire. You might go to a fire right from an EMS run. You better be ready. You better be on your, you know, you have your game play fan, face on. And so that's some of the things that they face. There's so many things that they have to do now, but yet you have to be proficient in every one of them. That's difficult. So it takes a lot of training, a lot of dedication, good offices and good leadership at the top. Right. And, you know, we've touched on fires, emergencies, terrorist events, uh, natural disasters, all of these things you're just mentioning you know, the leadership under fire team has devoted a considerable amount of effort to collecting and documenting best practices and recommendations for fire and emergency operations during civil unrest, which is something we saw mm-hmm. this year. So having served in the FDNY during the war years and periods of civil unrest, do you have any insight or wisdom to share? As a, a, a fire department, you know, you're obligated to do your job, whether it's peaceful times or mm-hmm. times of, of civil unrest. I, I, I think you still have to be there to respond to extinguish fires. You still have to be there to respond for a medical emergency. Uh, again, carefully, but I, I think as a department, I'll put this way, as a service, not only the department, forget New York, but as a fire service, we still have to do our job. And, and part of that will be responding during civil unrest. And I'm not saying that you're going to get mixed up with anybody, but you got to be there to protect the people that might be under attack in a civil unrest. Somebody's house might be on fire. You're going to let it burn. You can't let it burn. You got to you got to extinguish that fire. You got to do your job. Again, you're going to be doing with a police escort like we did in the '70s, but we did it back then. Well, you know, we can do it again. I appreciate you sharing so much insight so far today. We've touched on so many different topics. Some of them, many of them, serious. So as we begin to wind down today, I wanted to make mention of the fact that you're in another elite club in that you're one of only a few members in FDNY history to break the three-hour marathon. <laughs> so past I, lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to explore your running career and you know what were some of the challenges and benefits of the sport of running for you? Well, it, it's funny because I, I played a lot of sports. I was pretty good at baseball and a few other sports. But I hated running. <laughs> Absolutely hated running. And and then when I took my exam for, for lieutenant, I was like, I got to do something. <laughs> so 
So I met a friend, a fellow who said, yeah, you should take up running. I said, running, I hate running. He says, no, but you'll like it. It'll, it'll really take your mind off things. That's how I got into it. And then I started covering in the 15th division. And at that time it was, I don't know if you ever heard of the expression, the tin house, but the tin house used to hold a turkey trot. And I used to cover there and they said, oh, you gotta, you know, start to run. And then I realized running was just another form of discipline. You didn't need anybody to do it. I'd get up in the morning, put my sneakers on and go out the door. And if I felt good, I ran 10 miles. If I didn't, I ran five. But I always made sure that I ran a certain amount because during that run, I solved the world's problems by myself. My mind was like going, what are we going to do today? How are we going to fix this? But to me, running was just another form of discipline that extended from the job. And I didn't think I'd get good at it, but somehow, I don't know how, but I broke three hours a couple of times in the New York City Marathon. So I guess all that long training worked. What was it like to break the three-hour marathon? I haven't done it. Uh, I, I will tell you, Pat, it was just like, it was a crazy, crazy feeling because, you know, I, I, I never thought I'd get down to that goal. And, and then all of a sudden, I realized I'm in Central Park. And I got a shot at breaking three hours. And I know that I'm ready to break down anyway. And just getting across that finish line, it was so exhilarating. And it's funny, my wife had met me at different spots along the road. And I said, look, I'm going to try to be here in 40 minutes. I'm going to try to be here. So I was sticking to the schedule where I had to be at. And then there they were at the finish line. It was amazing. <laughs> I have to tell you, it was amazing. And, and, the, and the first year I did 259. The next year after that, I did 257. And it was like, I can't believe this because this is going to be something that nobody's ever going to be able to take away from us. <laughs> right, right. Excellent. I'd like to end our conversation today with a series of short questions, if that's okay. Sure. All right. So another career path that you think you would have enjoyed? I would have enjoyed banking. I was studying accounting in college before I, I got drafted. And I actually was pretty good at it. I had a good mind for math. <laughs> and, I, and I liked accounting. And I used to work for First National City Bank when I came out of high school. And they put me on a training program where I was going to be an executive. And then I realized, man, I don't know if this is the way I want to go. But I did, I did like the job. So I, I, I might have found a, um, a career in banking. Probably made a lot more money than I did in the fire department. But never been as happy. Or as exciting. <laughs> <laughs> or as exciting, for sure. <laughs> that's some dichotomy, right? Banking and FDNY. Yeah. Right. Okay. Your favorite FDNY firehouse. Oh, you're not, you're gonna, I'm, you're not gonna get me in trouble, that's for sure. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I, I, I love, and, and I, I'm serious. I loved every firehouse I worked. I started in a 55 engine alone, had 31 engine, a 55 engine, and, and, you know, I had some senior men there, and, and then I went to 113 as a lieutenant and a captain where I had all young people, and, and it was a great firehouse, and I ended up in the 4 battalion, and, and then I worked in every division. So I'm going to say my favorite class that I worked in was every one that I worked in. <laughs> Safe. I might have people listening to me. I'm not going to get in trouble for this. No way. I had to try. <laughs> <laughs> and your favorite American leader from any era in history? I got a few, uh, but I'm going to say uh, General Eisenhower or President Eisenhower. And then I love some of the stuff that Teddy Roosevelt did as well. 
Okay. And your favorite New York City based leader from any era? Well, I'm I'm gonna tell you it's 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 more contemporary, but Nick Scapetta. He was we worked very closely together naturally when he became the commissioner and I was with him for the eight years that he was there. But his story is just amazing. He was a foster child, uh, um, a member of the military, went to school in the GI Bill, became a lawyer, was the, worked in the NAP Commission, then went to private practice, comes back and runs ACS in the worst of the times of ACS, getting ready to retire to go back into private practice, and Mayor Bloomberg asks him to take over the fire department in the worst time in our history. Mm-hmm. And he does it, and he does it well. And to me... Um, he's going to go down the annals of the history of New York City as one of the top 50, 100 people. What's your favorite book? Okay, so this is going to be it's more contemporary. And you're going to see there's a lot of September 11 scenes in anything you ask me. But it was the horse soldiers uh, right. about the troops that went to Afghanistan right after September 11th and the secret of mission. And um, great story, great book, a great movie. We, I was lucky enough and fortunate enough to meet everybody involved in that operation later on. Became friends with, at that time, Colonel Mahone, now General, retired just General Mahone. Uh, it's truly, a truly amazing story. And, and uh, people should really read it to see how much we did after September 11th to get this country back in shape. Who is your favorite athlete? Okay, I, I have two. As an old Brooklyn Dodger fan growing up, my favorite athlete was Pee Wee Reese. He was someone that I tried to emulate. We both played shortstop, a both on number one. And it was somebody that I looked up to who was very, very good with Jackie Robinson when Jackie Robinson was coming up to the major leagues and helped him to get adapted. And then I know this sounds crazy, but my second favorite is the Yankee, Babe Ruth, <laughs> who I think is the greatest baseball player ever. He is just somebody that was just head and shoulders above everybody else who helped bring the baseball back after the Black Sox infamous scandal. And I think he saved baseball. So those two baseball plays were probably my favorite athletes. And finally, what's your favorite war movie? Again, the September 11th theme, Lone Survivor, tells a story about Mike Murphy, who we, who was, and it was adopted by 53 engine or 43 engine uh, ship named after him. We got bunker gear on the ship from the fire department. Uh, it's a great story. It's true heroism. And, um, I mean, there's so many war movies that are great. You can go to Band of Brothers and all. But, uh, as I said, that September 11th theme just runs throughout my life. And Lone Survivor was uh, just a movie that just mesmerized me. Well, Commissioner, I have to say it was such an honor to speak with you today. And I am so appreciative of how generous you are with your experiences and your insight and your your candid reflections. I really believe this is going to help people listening in to develop their own leadership skills and take charge of their own careers. Yeah. And and, uh, as I said, leadership on the fly does a great job. Uh, There's always a lot to learn. Uh, when you stop learning, you might as well just pack it in because you're never going to ever stop learning to get better at what you do. And uh, Leadership on the Fire helps to get that done. So thank you and to Jason and the whole team.
The Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.